Welcome to the Present and Sober podcast with your hosts, Sam Goldfinch and Ellie Crow. If you want to make your life bigger, not smaller, then this is the podcast for you. If you can sense that you're destined for more and you're curious about how drinking could be holding you back, listen in and come on this journey with us. Through the interplay of mind and body practices, we will help you elevate your daily life and discover the wonder and potential of going alcohol free. Let's make life bigger together. Hello and welcome to the Present and Sober podcast. We are here Ooh. for episode three yeah. and we've got a veritable treat for you today because the <laughs> wonderful Sam is going to be taking us through his story. So uh, where do you want to start, Sam? You know, what? I've just been really struggling. How do you, you know, it's, it's so weird. There's so many different starting points, aren't there? Um, I think a good place for me to start would be the first time I decided to take a month away from drinking. Um, And that was not long after I rocked up to Poland, right? So basically this was, um, let me think, I think about, oh, I can't remember how many years ago now, a few years ago. And when I turned up, I'd spent um, a good few years doing a lot of like traveling cliche stuff, bouncing around Australia and New Zealand and Southeast Asia and partying and drinking and woo and all that stuff. And, you know, um, and I think I had maybe never questioned my drinking because, well, why the hell do you question your drinking when it's 24 hours a day and everybody's doing it and there's just never a reason to question it, right? And I think I crash banged into Poland, right? I'd just done this thing called a CELTA, which is a one month, like really intense teacher training thing for teaching English as a foreign language. Oh. And uh, crash banged into this city called Bidgosh, and it was like, whoa, this place is different. <laughs> I rolled up into this train station at the time. It now has quite a relatively modern one, but at the time it was really quite confronting. It was like, where am I? Like, this is fully down buildings and these really like imposing, like, you know, sort of communist style blocks. Wow. And I was like, whoa, like, what have I done? Um, anyway, the direct, the school director picked me up, took me to this new flat, right? Um, and it was like this giant, big, tall, green communist uh, block of flats. Uh, and I went in and, you know, when you walk into somewhere and I think the anxiety was up for me and I just didn't, I couldn't see past there, like, what have I done? So like, I just, you know, just didn't feel, I was like, oh, ah, like, have I made the right decision? Like, and I'm in a country, like, you know, I'd done a lot of traveling to that point. I've been in a lot of places and pushed myself out of my comfort zone, but I hadn't really been anywhere where nobody speaks the lingo. You know, this was like mm. a backwater town deep in the heart of Poland. No one spoke English, basically, when I got there pretty much. And I was just like, I could feel it. And so I remember coming into the flat and the first thing I did was what any good hard drinking Brit would do I thought shit I don't know what to do with myself I'm gonna go find the Rinneck or the town square uh, mm. and I'm gonna neck eight pints of strong Polish beer and and you know it's gonna be great and you know it was better I suppose than I was feeling at the time <laughs> but then soon after I had the crash and the hangover and the the ramp of anxiety anyway that preamble was me basically saying then there was the like anxiety of having to start to teach and a lot of stuff was really on top of me and and anybody who's become a teacher I, I I tell you what there's nothing like those first few lessons like they are really they really push you you know you're you're there you're on show you're performing you are absolutely like well I was anyway really fearful of like you know what are people going to think of me you're being mm -hmm. watched I mean 
damn think of another job where you like get watched like a hawk you first it's like it's horrible it's really horrible that first bit um so i ended up in this yo-yo of like drinking really heavily and in that world like this is a whole other podcast telly but like in the TEFL world of teaching and, and uh, in drinking is and, and mental health, I've, I've written about this is a really big issue. Like this, mm. it's a huge, it's a huge um, high, high pressure environment where people are pressurizing each other to drink and et cetera as well. Um, so yeah, I was partying and I was teaching and I had a job with real responsibility for, you know, the first time ever. I'd done a lot of work in hospitality and things like that, where you can kind of, you know, you, you don't have sort of like, you know, people relying on you in the, in the way that you do when you're teaching. Um, mm. And so I ended up in this yo-yo and it took me to this point of crash banging a few times and having sort of like days where I was hung over teaching and I was just like, holy moly, I don't want to do this again. This is rank. Um, and so I kind of was like, I'm, I need to take some time away. I need like a month away from alcohol. Um, And the reason I put that as the kind of start point is that I think when you do that, when you take a month away, you subconsciously acknowledge something um, that you haven't done before, which is actually alcohol might be taking more right now Mm. than it's giving Mm. me. Mm. And the moment you do that, this really weird thing happens is it, it's kind of that thing of like, you know, if you can really truly moderate, you never worry about moderating because taking yeah. it or leaving it, as Annie says, is taking it or leaving it. The moment you're trying to take it or leave it, you're in a different space. And I think that was the first time that I entered into this space of acknowledging, not consciously, but unconsciously through this decision to take some time away that this is messing up my life right now. Like it's making me hurt and I feel like shit. And I need to mm. do something about this. Mm. Anyway, so I took that month and I can actually remember like feeling really good. I can remember it being tough. I can remember, you know, I was kind of just like having a go at that point. Um, but it started a journey because what happened in that month was it ramped up yoga, meditation, all these things that we've spoken about became much more clear and my teaching became better. I became just a better human, I would say. Um and I, you know, that was duly, that was logged, basically. It was like, okay, duly noted, back to drinking. So off we go. And things just got worse from that point. I think I just got into this yo-yo mode of extreme drinking and then time off. Extreme drinking and then time off. Um, and it was kind of like applying that logic of it, of like, well, you know, obviously, if you can stop drinking for a month or two months or three months, then mm-hmm. obviously you can just drink less when you're drinking. Like, because that's logical and that's Mm. obviously how it works um yeah it wasn't how it worked not for me and you know i would it was kind of this joke like you know there was like well where's the gray area why do you always have to be like the buddha like over there trying to like tell us all about meditating and yoga and how and clean eating and all the rest of it and on the other end of the scale turning into this absolute wreckhead um who's just like out till seven in the morning like woo, come on guys let's go (laughs) Uh, you know, and, and and a lot of other things started to happen. I started, I watched Cowspiracy. This is, this is connected. I watched the documentary called Cowspiracy and that made me go plant-based. Um, I'm not anymore. That's another thing we can talk about. I'm, I'm not actually anymore, but it, it really opened my eyes to eating consciously and approaching life mm-hmm. from a conscious way. And I was um, vegan for the best part of six years. Um, mm-hmm. I stopped using the term towards the end. I just called myself referred to myself as plant-based again for another podcast but um and I think I started to be just a lot more conscious in everything I was doing so drinking Mm -hmm. I was becoming more conscious of the pain that it was producing um 
<clears throat> and it's funny because up until that point, I think as a teenager in the UK, um, I was just, you know, just kind of, well, I always used to think it was normal and I'm starting to think, I'm starting to think that actually maybe it was a bit extreme, even by some teenage standards, just because, you know, I think the first time I got truly pissed, I was about 12. We like, and then there was a few times in like year eight, year nine, that is in our, in our sort of like school stuff. If you're UK, I don't know what that would be US. Um, but we, you know, we'd go around to parents' houses and we'd do the whole, you know, raid in the spirits cabinet, bit of this, mm. bit of that, bit of this. And you'd end up with a liter of absolute rank alcohol stuff like no god like people were no 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 wonder people were like vomiting and whatever and all the rest of it everywhere um but you know that was set and i think subconsciously i'd always seen alcohol as the golden elixir like my my mum and dad had actually met in a brewery they'd worked for the hops marketing board um and they were never um you know my dad's someone who's sort of drunk uh has drinks a couple of days a week and always has been um and still is now um and my mum basically doesn't really drink so it wasn't that I was in a house where there was heavy, heavy drinking, but, mm. but drinking was, was, um, you know, encouraged by, you know, my dad was very like, you know, he loves a drink, loves a beer. And, you know, that was how we bonded and connected. And that's definitely like, um, something that was going on in my teenage years. Um, and so it was, it was the golden nectar. It was the elixir of life. It was the thing that we were going to do when we were old enough. So as we transitioned out of skating and, and sport and all these things that we were really, really into, um, we like crash banged into this world of like, you know, alcohol. Mm. Um, so I did relatively well at school. I was really lucky. Like I went to a nice school and, and, and did well. And I have a really good, good group of friends who I'm still really close with. Um, but we, you know, we, we still would, if there was a social gathering or a party or whatever, it was, you know, we'd all sneak as much alcohol as, in as we could. And, you know, we'd, we'd get battered and we'd, you know, that's what we would do. Um, and we just didn't question it into our like sort of teens. And I had this really weird interaction with alcohol at the time because I had quite heavy OCD, really. I, I sort of hadn't really, as a younger child, like my, I would have, I had it quite, quite extreme. Like I would be, you know, washing my hands and doing all these sort of over and over again. And, and I, I had these kind of like physical outpourings of OCD and I'd hidden it from my parents. Like I knew something wasn't right and I'd never really spoken to them about it. Um, and I kind of started to internalize things because I was like, <gasps> someone's going to find out about all these weird things I'm doing. Um, and it was not until I was in my probably 20s that the penny dropped that I was like, oh, like all that way of thinking over and over about it's not just a physical thing. It's actually happening in my head all the time. I know that sounds crazy to not make that connection, but I was like, oh, it's how my mind works too. Mm. And then I was like, oh, because at this point I was already drinking loads. I was like, that's when I feel like the only thing I ever really got from alcohol personally when I first started drinking was I'd get that initial kind of rush that we would talk about, the kind of like as your blood alcohol level goes up for your first 20 minutes. Um, and I would get this like release from my mind, which was yeah. like, oh, like, whoa, like a deep sigh. But way quicker than all my friends, I noticed a pattern in my drinking, which was I got tired and sleepy and didn't feel good anymore a lot quicker than many of the others. So I would mm -hmm. like, when we went out to Cambridge, uh -huh, where I grew up, strangely um a connection between me and ellie um i we'd go out clubbing we'd go out partying 
Um, and like my mates would be out till like, you know, three, four, you know, drinking away all the rest of it. By 12, I'd be done. I'd be like, I want cheeseburgers. I want to sleep. I want to go home. And it would be a drag. Um, yeah. But, um, so it was kind of like had that relationship with it. When I got to uni, um, I got into the rave scene, something for another day as well. But that changed things. Suddenly I was like, oh, now I see how you, you know, can stay up till six o'clock in the morning and have a good time mm-hmm. and not have to 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 scurry home kind of thing and that really changed things for me and put me on another path with my drinking um but again not questioning it it was like okay through uni I kind of I think I sort of sat there one day and went you've pretty much had a drink every single day for four and a half years you know Mm. and Mm. a lot of those days been really you know drunk or high or whatever and it's like oh, wow, like, that's mad. Like, I've always been under the influence of something here. But again, you just sort of like, keep going, keep going, and then ended up in hospitality. So easy to roll off of a shift and just, you know, have beers handed to you. Um, and, you know, we'd come out of, I used to work for La Tasca, a restaurant, Spanish restaurant over here. Um, and I'd finish work and the guy opposite us, at a small pub, he used to just leave it open. We'd have a lock-in till like half six in the morning. I'd have a pocket full of tips, sometimes a hundred pounds in a night in tips. It was amazing, but I'd just splurge it all on alcohol. It was just what we did. Mm-hmm. I carried that with me into traveling as well when I went away. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think for me, patterns definitely in my drinking story are the relationship between my anxiety, my or the way that my thought patterns play out and alcohol. So... So when I went away traveling, we first, we went, I was supposed to go with a friend around New Zealand and Australia <clears throat> and long story short, had a lot of money saved up. But by the time I got there, he didn't really have any money left and he didn't tell me, <laughs> um, which was like, at the time was like, what? Like you knob, why didn't you tell me that you've like not got any money? Um, I've just come <laughs> out here with basically no money. And now what am what am I going to do? Um, in hindsight, it turned into the greatest thing ever because I, did something I would never have done, which is probably, you know, go out into the great wide world sort of on my own with nothing but a backpack and a little bit of cash. And I made it work. Um, I got jobs in crazy places and did all sorts of random stuff. But when I didn't know what to do, I went from New Zealand to Australia and I rocked up in Sydney and I didn't know what I was going to do with myself. I was starting to run low on money. So I did, again, I just, I had a similar reaction. I basically just drank myself into oblivion for a month. Not in a like, <clears throat> I'm just going to sit here and drink till the cows come home kind of way, but you know, I'm going to party with all these people in these youth hostels kind of way. Um, I just didn't question it. I just kept going, just didn't question it. Um, and so there's, there's so many other parts to that story of like the kind of like heavy drinking and how I got into those patterns. But I think there was this real powerful moment, as I said to you, um, when I decided to take that time away from drinking, because for the first time ever, it was like, oh, I'm being forced to acknowledge that this doesn't work anymore. That was probably like a, the best part of a 10 year journey from from like 16 wow. to 26. Um, and do you know what? Something else really weird happened um, after that, because that's the start. I'd say that's the end of the drinking that a lot of people would consider kind of like, that a lot of people do, I think. I think that story is definitely not unique to me. There's a lot of people that have had similar paths. Um, But then something really weird happened when I started to have a job that I really cared about. So I mentioned about that first month off. Um, 
excuse me if I'm literally flitting around all over the place with this, but I'm trying to be as linear as I can. Um, but I'm a crazy person, so it goes dot like linear in every direction. It's, it's <laughs> experimental jazz, as we said before. Yeah, exactly. It's not classical. Um, I got so basically over those. I was in Poland for about four and a half years, I think. Um, and I by the t- I think the last two years, the last year I was the assistant director of studies there, so kind of like a deputy head. But it's a different. It works differently over there. But I had twenty teachers relying on me I was doing teacher training a lot and uh, and it was great I really enjoyed it I, for the first time ever I'd started to really get into something I loved and at the time I didn't realize but I was doing a lot of coaching because um, I'd figured out oh it's way better if you don't just tell people what to do it's a lot better if you let them figure it out for themselves it and then works. it's yeah it does <laughs> um but the the double side of that was the emotional impact of having people relying on me um mm. emotionally really shifted things for me um and i was doing things way out my comfort zone so i was speaking to rooms of 100 people and training them and and doing these kinds of things things i hadn't done before um and having people come to me with problems that didn't have immediate solutions and it was like high level problem solving in the moment and it was like oh this is great i love this but there was this anxiety level to it so my drinking really changed from the amount of times that I was drinking to celebrate came down. That was like, Oh, it's Friday night, Saturday night kind of thing. Um, the amount of times I was drinking to just de-stress in the night was going up and it was just coming home and just having, just drinking differently. Do you know what? Probably less than a lot of the times I was drinking in my twenties and stuff like that, but the energy was different. All of a sudden it was like, well, why am I drinking now? Now I'm drinking because you know, to get over the day and all the rest of it. Um, and it's really funny how when you start drinking every night, this feedback loop you spoke about in your journey, Ellie, is that like suddenly the Friday night and the Saturday night going out and partying drinking doesn't work anymore because you're not withdrawing for a week from alcohol and getting this illusory benefit where you're like, oh man, I feel great, where really it's just like, because you already feel like shit because you drank too much the night before. <laughs> so mm. all you're doing on Friday night is, taken away the feeling crap bit from the night Mm. before Mm -hmm. um and you know so i came into this real cycle of doing weird things like i was starting to you know walk home quicker from work so i could go home and get my beer literally like speed walking home i would do things like um go to the shop on a monday and buy like enough beers for like monday night or whatever monday night tuesday night wednesday night buy a few beers right um and my mate would come around with me and, you know, we'd both, we'd walk home and he'd go his separate ways. Anyway, next day would come, I'd have drunk it all, right? I'd have drunk enough alcohol that was supposed to last a week or whatever. And then I'd be like, we'd be walking there and I'd be like, oh no, I can't go to the shop because he's going to think it's weird. He's going to know I've drunk it all. So I'd be like, um, ah, <laughs> oh, shit, I've left my pen at work. So I'd go, I'd lie, I'd go back, right? Create this whole bullshit story. And then I'd sneak off and buy more and all the rest of it. Spoke to him since he didn't know, I haven't a clue that any of this stuff was going on. But my internal world was suddenly just consumed with alcohol. It was just like bonkers, you know? And I think this is this whole thing of like, why I really don't like a word or a term like alcoholic personally, because um, my entire world was consumed at this point. I was behaving in crazy ways, but I never lost a job, never missed a day of work. You know, I didn't really upset that many people. I did some stupid stuff out and about, and I've definitely embarrassed myself and upset some people, but I didn't like, 
I mean, there are a few things, but there's, you know, it wasn't the utter horror story externally yeah. that a lot of people would associate, you know, brown paper bags sitting on the side of the street, lost your job, lost your, lost your wife, et cetera. Wasn't that, but it was like, if someone, and so I was rejecting anything like that, any label, I was like, well, no, because I can stop for a month if I want to, I can do this, I can do that. Like, it's, it's not a problem for me. I'm definitely not an alcoholic Um all the time slipping deeper and deeper into this real problem um, for me. And weird things started happening. I started to sometimes, I so I'd have this like time away. I'd have these like two months away or something, or three months away. Um, and I was starting to engage with, you know, Anakar's easy way to stop um, drinking and all this kind of stuff. Um, and, and there were some times where I would, almost actively enjoy the fact I was relying on alcohol. It became this kind of like rock and roll. I've tried to talk about this before. I've always found it really hard. This kind of like rock and roll, like it's my best mate. It doesn't matter because I'm going to go home and drink my four cans or my eight cans or whatever. And that's, I know I can rely on that. That's got my back. My best mate, you know, Carlsberg or whatever has got my back. Um, And that was a shift. That was weird. Um, and you start to wear some of this stuff like a bit of a badge of honor, you know, um, odd one, that one. Um, and I think in the end, I was so battered and bruised and I had, you know, read, um, I'd read this naked mind. I had found, um, Holly Whitaker's blog and I had had some real positive times away, some quite long times away. And none of it was cutting the mustard. I just kept coming back. And in the end, I was like, I'm going to do something that is brave, that, you know, really puts me on the spot. I'm going to do a year. Mm. Um, and I did that year. And that year turned into 18 months. Um, I think 19 months, I think it was, um, of not drinking. Um, and that was unbelievable. Such an amazing 19 months of my life. I basically finally stepped into the me at work who who I was meant to be I started turning up for myself I started turning up for others um it was really amazing it was really cool um and I was still doing that thing of like I hadn't built rebuilt my life I was just like living my same life without booze so I was like still going out on a Friday night till three in the morning and things like that I just wasn't drinking Mm. um and like it was funny that was really interesting to see that well you can do that if you want to do that and you can have a really good time doing it as well um Mm. but I was still carrying around a lot of like stuff beneath the surface like you know so I'd you know I think I'd demolished a lot of the substance level beliefs you know doing it to relax but there was stuff going on deep deep down OCD and all these other things that were Mm. still there that I'd buried um I was bullied pretty heavy when I was in years you know when I was about 11 12 I basically spent two years looking over my shoulder um worried that I was going to get the shit kicked out of me and that strangely enough coincided with the peak in OCD for me. So I'm sure there's a connection there. Um, And there were just a few things that I hadn't dealt with that was just at the time, the rush and the buzz of stopping drinking and getting my life back was just great. Um, I went to Spain. I did a really hardcore teacher training program, Delta it's called. And I smashed it. I really did. I got like distinctions and all sorts. I was like, wow, I'm on fire. Like I've, I've always known I could do this. I like scraped through uni with 51% or something. And I was like, but I knew I had this potential and I was suddenly hitting it. 
I went to India, backpacked around India for five, six months, trained to be a yoga teacher, loved it, absolutely loved it. Um, had these incredible experiences. And then I came home about after this. So I was about in India for about five months. Um, I came home and I got thrown into some situations that were I hadn't faced. So even though I'd been out and about and in the world traveling uh, and making my world bigger and doing exciting things, there were certain things like dating. I basically just said, I'm not dating for a year. It's off the table. It's not happening, right? Um, there were things to do with like going into rooms, social rooms with big groups of people. Um, I had basically created my experience so that I could you know, go to hostels, which were smaller and talk to people that were smaller and have these yeah. organized social experiences where people would curate it for you. Um, and then when I came back, um, I suddenly landed back in Norwich, my home city started like I met somebody that I was like um wanted to kind of like go on dates and stuff and I was like well I've never done this before this is wild like how the, how the hell do I do this um and all these things started coming up I started like going back into old situations places where I'd been a really heavy drinker that were triggering like memories and romanticizing alcohol and and I sort of suddenly ended up in this this um but internal battle again that I didn't know was waiting I thought I'd done it. I was like, well, this is it. Um, but, you know, I hadn't really been honest. I hadn't fully expressed myself, spoken to my parents. I didn't have a community of people who didn't drink. I didn't really deeply, truly understand a lot of the mechanisms that were at work. And I didn't know what I didn't know about me. Mm. Like there was this box that I hadn't opened. Honestly, some of it, because I didn't know the box was there. Mm. Like, I think we have these rooms inside of us. Um you know, is it, is it liminal thinking? What a great book. Um, is it, I can't remember the guy who wrote it. Um, he talks about these rooms. It's kind of like the room of like stuff that you know about that you don't share with people. Then there's like mm -hmm. the room of the stuff that you don't know, you don't know. Then there's the stuff that you know, you know, and you know, and there was just suddenly all this stuff that I didn't know, I didn't know came up, bang. And I was like, oh, um, what am I going to do? And I, you know, I ended up drinking is the, is, is the mad outcome of that. After 19 months away, I decided I would test the moderation game. Strangely enough, I was just going to train to be a state school teacher in the UK, PGCE, which is heavy. And, mm. you know, the summer before that started, I, I thought, yeah, it's fine, you know, two years. And, you know, I had that experience of like, you know, it was fine for a week, you know, I had a couple of beers here or there. And then really quickly, it was like, all these old attachments came back and suddenly I was drinking and, you know, needless to say, they weren't the three months, worst three months I'd ever had drinking on paper, but the cognitive dissonance of the two different voices going on inside my head was like horrible. Mm. Um, and I'd started to notice some real patterns and I had one night at the time I was still plant-based. Right. And I had this one night where I woke up and I had like, right. It's my, it's so funny. Um, my partner, Rob, she thinks this is hilarious. I sort of woke up and I had a packet of galaxy minstrels, uh, like a pack of Santal Gare cheese and like Mars bars. And I was like, Oh no, drunk Sam is sending Sam a message to like sort his <laughs> life out because he's like breaking his like values and his rules. Like what's he doing? Um, Oh, such a mad thing, isn't it? Um, but funnily enough, that morning, that was the last time I ever drank. And the night before I'd gone out um, with a friend, um, this was basically the PG. So my training had already started, but we hadn't gone to our placement school. And I knew deep down what going through this next year was going to be like if I was drinking. 
Like I'd learned so much in those 19 yeah. months, you know, I'd consumed so many books and quit lit and all that. I knew what was waiting. I knew it was going to be hell on earth, basically, internally. It was going to suck. So I was like, got to do something. So I did what I, a pattern that I'd also done, which is I just kept drinking worse and worse until it got to a point where I was like, well, now you have to stop because you're basically in a right mess, mate. Um, mm. And that happened a lot in Poland as well. I get to the point where I was like, I'm going to drink so much. It's going to hurt so much. I have to stop, which is crazy. But mm. one of the patterns that used to play out. Um, and so I went out that night with, with a friend and didn't really enjoy any of it because I'd been drinking so heavily. It was just like, we just went to shit bars and drank and it was horrible. Um, and I felt so bad. And so as well as the Santal Gare and the Minstrels, I also p- picked up a small bottle of whiskey and some other stuff or whatever to have <laughs> drinks with. Sounds like a right picnic. <laughs> oh, tell me about it. Like the demons pick, the devil's picnic. Um, <laughs> so good. And I went to, like I I woke up the next morning and I remembered that I'd like stopped the fridge with booze and I'd bought this little bottle of, of um, booze. And to, just to repeat, by a lot of people's standards, that night before, by the way, like that was like a big night out drinking, but on paper was kind of like, you know, a big night out drinking, like a lot of Brits do in the UK. Mm. It was just mm. compounded on top of everything else, you know. Um, but I was like, I planned to basically just, I knew I was going to feel like shit. And I was like, I'm just going to drink through, I can just drink through the weekend and that will make everything okay. And I was like, oh dear, like that is a, that's a pattern that I've seen before. Like Alcohol Explained by William Porter really dives into this very well. This kind of like, this knowledge that you get to, that you beat down the idea that because alcohol caused you to feel shit it's crazy to drink again you get to this point in the end where it's like alcohol made me feel crap but i know if i drink again i'll feel a bit better that'll make me feel crap a bit better crap better that cycle i was so deep into it and that because i read up on it i was like oh whoa now i'm aware like i'm literally gonna obliterate myself for a weekend just so i don't feel so and that's just gonna carry on and then i'm gonna roll into school and blah 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 and i was like I'm done. Enough's enough. I'm not doing this crap anymore. Mm. Um, and I got rid of it all, reread This Naked Mind. Um, and the biggest thing I probably did at that point was started a blog called Unaddicted. Um, yeah, wow. Started pouring my heart and soul out. I hadn't really been honest with my mum and dad. You know, they're going to listen to some of these podcasts and be taken aback by some of the stuff they hear, I'm sure. But, you know, I think it's really, if you can, like the parts that you know that you want to share I think it's powerful to work to a place where you feel comfortable sharing them. Not that we have to share mm. everything, but I always knew I wanted to be honest about this. So I did it the only way I knew how, which was I started pouring my words onto paper. It just came out of me. Like, it's really funny, you know, because I haven't blogged a lot recently, but at that time it was so raw, like 20 posts just like whoosh, straight out. Yeah. And I, my mum and dad read them and they were just like, oh, I can't, you know, the kind of normal reaction of like, oh, that hurts. Like, I can't believe you didn't sort of share kind of thing. And I was like, you know, when you're lying to yourself, mum, you, you don't, you know, I can't, I'm lying to me, let alone me being honest with you. Mm-hmm. And so th- by breaking down those walls, I got a bit of a community going. Um, and yeah, I think that was real. I can remember there's two things, writing the blog, like just before I clicked live on the blog, I was like, all oh, this shit came up again. Cause suddenly that like, you're like, oh, this is a decision that I'm making for good. It's like more things from the subconscious poured up that I was like, I think I need to deal with this. But I was brave and I pushed through and I did it. The other one was when I got Holly Whitaker's TT, teetotal tattoo on my arm. Again, it came pouring out of me. It was like, because I was like, whoa, like this is a badass act of like accountability. Like 
there's no good. And like, and I knew I needed to do it. I wanted to do it for me. I was like, I never want to be lying in my own pits of despair, covered in Santal Gare and Galaxy Minstrels again. Thank you very much. <laughs> Those days are over. It's 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 picnics with you know, you know, mm. grass fed this and whatever. It's from now on. It's not. Anyway, I diverge. Divulge. Um. Yeah. I don't really know where I'm going with this, but that funnily enough, you know, ever since I started writing about it, that became a thing. And then I started connecting with people. They started reaching out to me. I started in Instagram and I started helping people. Um, and I started doing life coaching, um, through school, actually through teaching off the back of, I was off the back of like wanting to do it there. I hadn't connected the dots between these two worlds. Honestly, I really hadn't. They just were not connected in my mind. Um, and then one day this guy got hold of me, bit of serendipity bit of paid facebook advertising just like you ellie and it was like bang this guy got hold of me into his business course and was like look if you want to be a coach you know it's really good to figure out your story how are you going to help people how are you going to talk to people that really deeply touches them and resonates with them so that you know your hero's journey becomes a way of them setting themselves free mm. um and i was like right yeah okay there's this huge thing that is been a massive part of my life and I've managed to walk away from this um you know the journey started when I was 26 27 I really cracked this you know after I just knew you know after that after that 19 month and then that that time back in I just knew from that point that I had to do the work I was like mm-hmm. I know that I've now got a lot of stuff to do I need to find this box of stuff that I don't know what's going on and try and I need to get help from people that are going to shine a light on that place for me mm-hmm. and in doing that um, you know, it's opened up this whole world of Technicolor, like you said um, last time around, Ellie, and I'm still working through stuff as we all do, you know, no one's fully cooked. Mm. Um, um, but yeah, I think I'm definitely in a much more, just just life is just good. And I and to have stumbled across this way of helping other people and, and to be able to coach in this space is just a, is a is an absolute dream. I have to pinch myself sometimes and I'm stepping out of teaching pretty much. I'm doing a small amount next year, but this is pretty pretty much me being brave and going into this full time again before I'm ready um, on many levels. But that's something I've learned is that, you know, with many of these things, we never really feel ready. You get ready. Um, mm. You know, you, yeah. So I'm, uh, I think I'm waffling now. I think I'm yeah. at a natural Look, end. I'll cut you off there. <laughs> No, it's, it's so it's no, it's it's so interesting listening to to you talk, and I have a tendency to talk too much, so I wanted to sit back and let it unfold the way that it did. And the really interesting thing that I heard over and over and over again, at all the different intersections of your story, was this theme of bravery. And you said a couple of times, "I had to be brave," and you know, we we know through. Our training with this naked mind, the then the work that we, um, you know, the, the work that we do, learning about the power of the, subco- uh, the power of the subconscious mind, mm. you know, ultimately your brain wants to keep you safe, sure. and so if if you stay in your comfort zone and you don't do anything too risky or too uncomfortable, then your, your brain's going to be happy because it hasn't had to alert you to all of the danger. And um, it's so easy to stay in that comfortable place. And I think that's why people get stuck for such a sure. long time because it feels 
terribly uncomfortable when you push yourself out of your comfort zone and you have to be brave you have to have courage what, what you said at the end there like yeah the confidence comes last you have to accept that the, the, the you're not going to you're not going to take the leap with confidence that's going to come last but right through your story there's all of these different stages where you had to be brave if you hadn't have been brave it would have been it would be a very 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 different story um and i just think that as a theme is is really interesting despite the pain that you're in how you um how you listen to that that pull that mm-hmm. pull that forces you to be brave to do the thing even though it feels massively uncomfortable your brain is telling you that you're going to die by going ahead with whatever the thing is and you push through and do it anyway um and and as we know the other side of these brave moves it feels incredible particularly when alcohol's out of the equation because then you then get the full contrast of the emotion um so like as, as an example i remember the very first time that i coached in the live alcohol experiment my brain was telling me i was going to die as i went <laughs> to sit in front of the mic in front of three thousand people um my brain is telling me you are going to die and i felt the full extent of the nerves um I remember describing it to Annie afterwards and I said, look, you know, in, in days gone by, that would have had a glass of wine to take the edge off or some Valium because the, the, the intense mm-hmm. nerves, the feeling of sickness. And one of the tools that I love to use is um, reframing uh, anxiety and worry and nerves as excitement because physiologically yeah, it, powerful, it, it right? feels the same thing. Mm-hmm. It feels the same way. So I would tell myself it was excitement. I would do deep breathing. Guess what? I got through it. And not only that, but I felt the ecstasy, the euphoria of being on the other side and have done this enormously brave thing that ju- it, it, it just opened so much up. And when I was talking to Annie about it afterwards, she said, yeah, that's the thing. With, that, with alcohol in the mix, you can't selectively numb. So you mm. numb the nerves, but you also numb the other side of it. You numb the euphoria. And so that was really one of my first experiences of really pushing through some, some terrible discomfort to do something really, really brave and then feeling this euphoria, the, the, the wonderful feelings at the side of it. Yeah, that's amazing. It's, it makes me really think about why. So my kind of like when I so I had this this blog called Unaddicted and then that's morphed into the sober rebellion um, and. I think reflecting on this, I now kind of, I've said a lot over the course of the last two or three years, um, you know, my, t- the tagline is, you know, sober rebellion because not drinking is badass. Mm. And this is what I mean is that we get this idea of like, ah, oh, you know, ah, oh, you know, society will tell you it's, it's badass to go out there and drink and get battered on the night and have your hangover and wear your stories like war wounds. And it's like, no, do you know what's badass is doing the work, turning the mirror and looking deep inside your soul and figuring out what you need to do to set yourself free from things that have happened early on. And that's scary. Like, you know, it can be, but it's necessary if we're going to move through these places to, to real freedom. And that work to me is really cool. Subversive, badass, the most badass choice that you can make. So now when people, if anyone ever says to me, Oh, you know, it's unfortunate you can't drink. I always have to hold back a laugh. Most of the time it's like, Mm. No, no, no. Because like, if things hadn't got that bad for me, I think if I were able to control my drinking 30% more than, than I could, there's a possibility that I might still be in the throes of that right now. So I oh, yeah, am grateful yeah. Yeah. for all that shite. 
and grateful for it. Like you were saying, you know, you know, these things come up and they're dark, they seem dark, but ultimately the way to the light is through them. Um, mm. oh, and yeah. finding ways of getting hold of people that can help you do that, whether that's shadow, mm. shadow work, CBT, whether it's therapy, whether it's coaching, whether it's whatever mm. it is. Mm. So yeah, it is badass not to drink. And um, I've learned that. And so we've, we've determined two things that you are. One is a badass and two well, is I try. brave. <laughs> I try. I step into fear is definite. I've learned that if there's fear and if there's like, that's the, that's the magic people chase happiness. Yeah. Yes. But yeah. walking into fear is a far more powerful way of getting happiness as a byproduct. Cause oh, when yes. you step into fear, you're stepping out your comfort zone, which means you're growing. Mm-hmm. And like you were talking about your values of growth and discovery, Ellie, like mine are basically growth, freedom and discovery as well. Like I think probably that's one reason why we're so drawn to work with each other, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. Once you step into that fear, once you expand your world, once you make your world bigger, then happiness comes in through the back door. Because, yeah, yeah exactly. So, a parting question then. So, the this this bit about bravery. Yeah. What's what's your top tips on bravery then? And and you could almost split it into top tips on bravery for if you're stuck, and if you're not stuck. Hang on. Top tips if you're stuck. Right. If you're stuck, feel the fear and do it anyway. There is a sign that you're being told something. If you're scared to do something, you care about it. Mm-hmm. If you didn't care about it, you wouldn't be bothered. You wouldn't need to be brave. So the reason you're brave is because you're putting yourself on the line because it means that this is important to me. I'm putting who I am out there. If this doesn't work out, for example, I this might happen or this might happen. Screw that. Don't listen to it. Step in step in Mm -hmm. and see what happens um so i think if you're stuck step in to the fear um what was the other one if you're not stuck if you're not stuck if you're not stuck you're in a really good place but Mm. you could expand things further yeah okay if you're in your comfort zone and there's a piece of you that kind of knows just know that the kind of hedonistic set point and you know how we enjoy life and what we kind of and this growth, if growth is a big value of yours, which I think it is for many of us, comfort zones are, you know, it's like a double-edged sword, isn't it? Your comfort zone, you go into your stretch zone. If you're not careful, you can end up in your panic zone, which you don't want to end up in. So you come back into your stretch zone and then over time, the stretch zone becomes your comfort zone and then you need a new stretch zone, you need a new comfort zone. So that dance is life. And yes. if you're not meeting that dance, if you're not like, oh, I'm going to tango with this, then come a time you will be in a comfort zone and you know, you're, you're going to be haunted by the fact that, that maybe there are things that you didn't do. Mm. Um, yeah. Love it. Love it. Right. So there we go. There's Sam's story. So thank you everybody for tuning in again. And if you can give us a like, um, we'll send you a packet Ooh. of minstrels to celebrate. <laughs> we, won't we, send the sandal gear. <laughs> we won't send the sandal gear. That'll go moldy. <laughs> It already is mouldy, so it doesn't really matter, does it? Uh. <laughs> oh, wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing, Sam. Really appreciate it. Thank you for being here, everybody. Give us a share, a like, and we'll see you for episode four. Cheers, guys. Have an awesome day. 
Okay, Tribe, there we have it. Another episode of the Present and Sober podcast. Hopefully you feel like you know me and Ellie a little bit better now uh, and you understand kind of our values and where we're coming from. And, you know, thanks so much to people that have been reaching out from across the pond and in the UK and leaving us reviews. It's been absolutely lovely to, uh, to hear from you. So as of now, as of next week, we're getting into some really juicy stuff. We've got a really great podcast coming up all about kind of being present, a bit more about the other side of this podcast, because we're not only about the wonder and potential of uh, living an alcohol-free life. There are going to be so many other dimensions to this podcast. So you don't want to miss it. Make sure you sign up. Go uh, subscribe on Google or Apple or Spotify, wherever you're listening from. And yeah, spread the word. And, you know, once again, thanks for listening. You're absolute rock stars. And uh, it's just been so nice to, to hear from so many of you. So let's keep making life bigger together.